Listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a richer understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, best-selling author, and someone who is right now wearing what just looks so ridiculous. It is a puppy hat. But there's a reason um, why I'm wearing this puppy hat. Those of you who've listened to the Fox page for a long time know that occasionally I like to uh, bust out a home knit favorite. You also know that I like to coordinate uh, whatever it is that we're reading with my outfit. You, of course, of course, remember Where the Wild Things Are by Maury Sundak, which is the book that we are going to really dive deeply into today. What you might not recall quite so clearly is that Max is uh, wearing a wolf costume. I did not have a wolf costume at hand, so here I am wearing my puppy costume. I will also have you know not only is this a uh, costume home knit and actually pretty ridiculous looking, uh, but it is also an award-winning costume. It won an award one time at a um, an ASPCA uh, dog parade. It is also, in fact, literary in its very own origins. I knit this one time for my daughter, who uh, was once the puppy in a middle school production of George Orwell's Animal Farm. So um, actually, that's a pretty cool accolade. It's a pretty cool origin story, um, what with all the socialism in that play. Um, and let me tell you, that was a pretty effective and a pretty dark middle school drama presentation. Speaking of complicated and dark and really interesting uh, pieces of literature, we today are going to dive into Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak. I uh, love this book, have always loved it, loved it when I was young and loved reading it to my kids. I think I loved it in part because it's a very complicated and in lots of ways a very dark and unusual children's book, which of course appealed to me. And let me tell you, this dive into where the wild things are really, uh, you know, has sort of galvanized my sense of this book as being an absolute literary masterpiece. In fact, if you have not, uh, you know, taken a look at the YouTube channel and you are a Fox page listener, this might be a really great one to give that a shot because I will in fact be putting lots of images this time into uh, the lecture. I always uh, put a bunch in, a handful, but this time it's going to be uh, especially sort of illustration rich, not just of the book itself, but lots of different um, pieces of, of the puzzle and, and what is uh, the charm and the complexity and the uncanniness of where the wild things are. So why is this an old favorite that I'm um, pulling off the shelf and diving into? One is this question of how incredibly beloved and incredibly enduring and how just ubiquitous this book is. Images of the wild things are everywhere. It's a, um, it's a book, we're gonna get to its popularity in a minute. We're gonna look at some heavy duty stats. But, but all of you know, uh, I think, that, that just the enduring quality of this book. But I'm also really interested in taking a deeper look at the complexities and the uncanniness and some of the unsettling darkness in the book. It's really interesting to look at uh, from a literary perspective and certainly as an adult looking back uh, and, and digging a little deeper than you might have if you in fact have children and read the book with them. 
it's a bit like when we did our deep dive into the Grinch or maybe um, like the Big Friendly Giant, the BFG by Roald Dahl. It's one of these enduring children's classics that I think really uh, have some very, very interesting things to say about why they're sticking around, despite the fact that, you know, aesthetically, they're a little spooky and uh, certainly unusual and are really, uh, really interesting and complicated and complex texts and illustrations that have really stuck in the, the collective unconscious and the collective consciousness, and certainly uh, in popular culture in general. I will also say that this book really, really did reward this deep dive. There is so much to say. At the top of the podcast today, I'm just going to give you a little sense of all of the things we're going to dive into. This is also sort of agenda for those of you out there who like an agenda. First, we are going to talk uh, quickly about Maury Sendak's biography. Really interesting and, and something that I actually knew almost nothing about and was, was really fascinated. We're going to then talk about the text itself. We're going to talk about the illustrations sort of as we are going along talking about the text. We're then going to talk about some of the complexities of the significance of the story. Uh, we're going to move on into the psychology behind this book, which is very interesting. Uh, and we're going to dip a toe into the psychoanalytic perspective on the text, which um, is a bit of me just kind of riffing. This is like me as like pseudo psychoanalyst. Uh, and then lastly, we're going to talk about the endurance of this childhood favorite. So, Maurice Sendak was born in 1928, died in 2012. Part of the reason um, I, I loved him all through my childhood and was a huge fan, actually, of, of a different book, one called Really Rosie, which was made, it's part of the Nutshell Library, uh, which I'm going to, um, for those of you who are watching on the YouTube channel, I'm going to put up a, um, a, a, an image of that. There was actually a musical called Really Rosie, which was a song that was very affirmative and very uplifting. Carol King actually does the music for it and she's so so good it's in my mind it's right up there with Marlo Thomas's free to be you and me and I can tell you right now that thing really holds up um you remember with the bright bright pink cover on the record and it there is that song the actual song like free to be you and me wow that is still still such a great song so um I was a big fan of Maurice Sendak when uh I was a young child and remained one as a parent but also, um, when I was graduating from Dartmouth College in 1991, I was so proud of the fact that we were giving Maury Sendak an honorary degree in 1991. Uh, we had Elizabeth Dole as our speaker. I remember nothing. Um, I actually just remember being so miserable because it was so, so hot. And I, I think I was probably pretty hungover. Um, although I had just met my husband, which was very exciting. I didn't know he was my husband at the time. But it was a big day for me, in part because we were giving Maurice Sendak, in fact, uh, this honorary degree on the day of my college graduation. So I had a special sort of kinship. I like to think we're, you know, we're almost sort of classmates, as it were. So, but he was born in 1928, so he was pretty old. I'm not going to do that math for you, um, but you know, in his 60s, I guess maybe, uh, when he got that degree in 1991, um, and didn't die until 2012. I believe he was 83 at that point. He was born in Brooklyn, New York, um, which was a very big part of his identity. And it's actually very uh, tangible in a lot of the illustrations, especially in the night kitchen. Um, and in a lot of the interiors, you get the sense of sort of Brooklyn brownstone if you start looking for it. Um, 
He was born to a Polish emigre Jewish father. So again, it's very important to understand that he was born in 1928. And in fact, um, he called his childhood a terrible situation, in part because he had a lot of family who was still in Poland who was killed during the Holocaust. And in fact, he would have been um, you know, old enough in, during the Second World War to really be very cognizant, you know, sort of in his early teens, 10 to 15 or so, um, you know, 10 years old to 15 years old, when all of those atrocities were happening. And I, I do think it's very important to realize that at such a formative time for him, he was really, uh, you know, very cognizant of, of what was happening in the world. And a lot of um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uncanniness and a lot of the unsettling nature and a lot of the sort of anger and fear in his children's books, I think, um, you know, I don't want to I don't want to, you know, sort of just really home in too, too closely on that. But I think it's a very important thing to remember that he had a childhood uh, that, that was filled with with a certain amount, well, not a certain amount, a gigantic amount of, of mortality. So the other thing, uh, his childhood was full of uh, childhood illnesses, like kind of severe ones, like um, you know, mumps and, and diphtheria and scarlet fever. And he was sick for long, long periods of time and was uh, kept in bed for long, long periods of time during which he read incessantly. He did a lot of, um, you know, comic books and a lot of gazing out the window, in fact. He was the youngest of three children. So he has a sister. I believe her name was Natalie, Natalia, maybe. That's wrong. I actually can't remember his sister's name. I want to say Natalie, but I'm not totally sure. Um, she was nine years older than he was. And then um, he had a brother who was five years older than he was. And the family was very bookish, a big reading kind of family. So um, he wanted to keep up always with his brother and sister and thought they were incredible. And so um, was always sort of striving to keep up with them. And in fact, had a, a, a real, um, you know, uh, a real talent for drawing and also for reading and for literature. So um, it, it was very much a part of his identity as a small child. Windows really play a big role in a lot of his work. He mentions that in a bunch of different interviews. Um, he talks in particular during one interview with Terry Gross. There are like seven interviews with him um, on Fresh Air that are all so great. And it's so interesting because Terry's voice gets higher and higher as you go back in time, which is so interesting to me. Um, but he talks a lot about how the window was, you know, sort of his television and it was his camera and it was his stage and everything that was going on outside in his Brooklyn uh, neighborhood was was really important to him because he, in fact, spent so much time in bed. He had a lot of relatives around, and in fact, we're going to talk about this a bit later, but um, the, the wild things, the actual sort of monsters in the book are modeled on these, um, on these family uh, relatives, these people who would come on Sundays and stay all day long with their like, you know, huge noses and their tufts of hair coming out of their nostrils and their big gross moles and their yellow eyes and their crazy teeth. Um, so you have this um, very sort of autobiographical in some ways sense of that, although he has very, oh my gosh, I just whooped my puppy ear, um, just smacked myself in my face <laughs> with my own puppy ear. Um, but he uh, did not see himself as Max, although in, in he it was such a great part of the interview. He said to Terry that he was a very obedient child and that he would not have had to write about disobedient children if he had been one, which I think is such an interesting and complicated statement about why we write and why he writes. So a lot of this may have been sort of wish fulfillment about what life could be like if he were a little less 
obedient. Uh, but we have these this this um, sense not necessarily that he's Max, but that the wild things, these sort of monstrous creatures, um, were in fact you know inspired by his relatives. He was an atheist. He was gay, and he lived with a partner who was a psychoanalyst named Eugene David Glynn. They lived together for 50 years. I was very glad to hear that. In one of the um, interviews with Terry, uh, she says, you know, Maurice Sendak is 50 years old and lives alone and has never had any children, which at the time I was like, oh, gosh, that's kind of sad. Um, but then, of course, you find out later, um, once his parents are dead, at some point in an interview with the New York Times, he mentions the fact that he had lived with his his partner for 50 years before his partner's death. He also said, and this is just a heartbreaker to me, um, he was quoted saying, all I wanted to be was straight so my parents could be happy. They never, never knew. So you also can imagine that there was a lot of um, emotion around this idea of, of being different and of not being fully um, you know, expressive with his parents. He also has said that his mother, in fact, has some psychological and emotional problems. Um, I don't know a lot more than that, um, but certainly mother figures in Maurice Sendak uh, are not super sympathetic. The last thing I want to mention about his uh, biography is that he views where the wild things are in the night kitchen and uh, outside over there as a trilogy. And when asked why he sees those three, um, those are some of the, the, the most popular and most successful of his work. Certainly where the wild things are outstrips all the others by, by a large, large margin. But he sees those three as a trilogy because in each one of those cases, the, and this is what he articulates in the interview, um, the story grows out of one single moment in the life of a child where mama and papa have turned their backs and these are not terrible parents. These are totally normal parents who've gotten caught up in life. They turn their backs and the child is, is sort of left to his own devices or her own devices in the case of outside over there. And there, there arises some sort of uh, uh, either some sort of a crisis or some sort of a situation where the child has to rely on his or her own instincts. And it's, it's a moment of real trial and of real quest and of real adventure. And it can be a very, very mundane moment. It's not a big accident. It's not a catastrophe. It's often a very sort of internal moment. But I found that so, um, so, so interesting and, and so sort of melancholy and sad in some ways because he's just speaking about all of the fears and all of the difficulties of being a child and feeling, he talks very frankly in these interviews about when he was a child, he felt totally powerless and he felt afraid of everything. He was really afraid of the vacuum cleaner and how the bag of the Hoover would sort of expand um, and he had to go to the neighbors when his mother was doing the vacuuming. But he talks about how he didn't want to become an adult but being an adult was actually a little bit better than being a child because there was so much fear and there was so much um, sense of, of not having any escape routes. Like, I think that's literally the word that he uses um, and not having any pocket money and not having any control. So a lot of the work you can see are these sort of mundane things about being a child and, and being afraid of the vacuum cleaner. Uh, so, so there's this very uh, clear sense of, of sort of small fears and small moments um, you know, that seem small or just like small fears or whatnot, but that in fact take on huge proportion because they are happening in the life of a child. So I want to talk very briefly about the other works of Maurice Sendak. I mentioned before um, th that I really loved Really Rosie, and that was part of the Nutshell Library. 
But then we also have this trilogy uh, where the wild things are in the night kitchen and outside over there. He wrote an opera. He um, wrote uh, later in his life, he went on to design sets for operas. And I think for a ballet, he wrote um, a nutcracker or he well, he illustrated a nutcracker. It's such a great volume. Um, and he wrote a book fairly close to the time that he died, um, which I actually don't have. I mean, it was honestly like my kids were even grown, but I, I there, there's a pretty good wealth of stuff that he has written that are really, um, it, it, it's an oeuvre that I think is really interesting to look at even as an adult. So now we're going to get to the main event here, which is to dive into where the wild things are. It was published in 1963. It won the Caldecott Medal the very next year in 1964, and it has been extremely, extremely successful and popular ever since. It, uh, Disney bought the rights and made a short film at one point. I, as I mentioned, it was an opera. It was a movie in 2009. Spike Jones did it. The soundtrack for that movie is insane. It is so great. Karen O oh from the Ya Ya Ya's does all of this amazing um, music in the soundtrack. And there are a lot of kids and a lot of sort of um, wild sounds. And it is so, so good. It is, in fact, so moving and so emotionally um, charged for me that I can't listen to it anymore. It's so good. Maybe I can now. I'm going to just like get up the strength. Um, it, it, it's a. I mean, honestly, I haven't seen the movie because I watched the trailer and I literally teared up. And I'm not someone who really tears up all that often. Um, I, I find the idea of watching it very difficult because it is a movie about childhood and fear and hope and adventure. Um, those are all words that Spike Jones pops up when he, um, you know, when he uh, is, is when they do the trailer. But it's really visually arresting. And um, I think it got like... I don't know, 6.7 on out of 10 on IMDb, or maybe 7.6, I can't remember. Um, but, it, you know, I think it was a critically acclaimed movie, certainly. Speaking of Spike Jones, the movie Her, which I loved with Joaquin Phoenix and Rooney Mara, uh, and I think Amy Adams, that movie is dedicated to Maury Sendak. So clearly Maury Sendak made a very large impression on Spike Jones. As of 2009, which is when that movie came out, 19 million copies of this book had been sold, at least 10 million of those in the United States. I can tell you, because I have now purchased it recently in two bookstores, one of one of which was very small, um, that it is a book that is very, very well stocked in all of the bookstores that you might wander into. It was the number one kids book um, chosen by the like American Library Association in 2012. And this is so weird to me. Apparently, President Obama read it multiple times during the Easter egg roll at the White House, which I think is so funny. Because here you're having an Easter celebration and you are reading this book that's actually like pretty intense, although we're going to get to the intensity of it and the controversy of the book. It's it's a controversial book. It's been uh, it's been banned. It, it's thought to be like way too scary to read to children. I also think it's interesting to be reading uh, a book that is by someone who is outspokenly atheistic and outspokenly Jewish. I'm not sure he's outspokenly atheistic, but certainly an atheist and outspokenly Jewish um, on an, during an Easter celebration at the White House. I mean, honestly, I love that. 
I think that is super great. Um, it's also just in terms of the palette, which we're also going to talk about. It's not exactly an Easter palette. I'm going to hold it up here. Actually, I mean, it's a lot of pastels. It's funny. Um, I think the most like the most uh, famous of the the um, images are a little later in the book and they are not so colorful. The ones um, that are that are well, I mean, I'm holding it up now. I remember the book being very gray and very, um, you know, sort of these dark colors. Here we have a little bit more of the dark colors. Um, but in fact, there's quite a bit of yellow, which, um, you know, not not just for their eyes, but also for Max's crown, yellow being a color that is, uh, you know, significant uh, in terms of meaning hope. So um, we have Obama reading it. Um, it also was number four on the New York Public Library's list of most checked out books of all time. And of course, I had to do some sleuthing and figure out what the number one book was. And I was actually very happy to know that it was The Snowy Day. Um, I think the last name of that author is Keats, uh, but it's, I was very happy. I love that book. No words, no words in that book, as I, as I recall. Very quiet book, which is very appropriate for a snowy day. But Where the Wild Things Are is number four, uh, really popular, popular book at the New York Public Library. Okay, and the history of the publication of the book is also pretty interesting to me. So um, apparently, Maurice Sendak wanted to write a book uh, about a child who has a tantrum and then goes off to the land of horses. But he realized that, in fact, he could not uh, draw horses. This is a story that sounds apocryphal to me. I'm like, this sounds like a little too convenient and a little too cute and a little too kind of storied. Um, but I did see it in multiple different places, uh, not just on Wikipedia, but I did look at it was in an article, although maybe that person was just quoting the Wikipedia. Seems like um, maybe that was the case. Um, so when he realized that he couldn't draw the horses, apparently, then he changed it to the wild things, which is a much, much better idea in lots of ways. Um, wild things as a term comes from Vilda Chaya, which is a Yiddish term, which means wild thing. Um, and, and I love that. So the other thing um, that when Maurice Sendak talks about creating these monsters, so he decided, in fact, that he wanted them to be to be monsters. And um, he didn't want them to be sort of normal monsters or typical monsters. He was telling Terry this while I was overhearing, you know, on Fresh Air. And he said he didn't want normal monsters like griffins or gorillas, which is kind of funny to me. So he, he spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time um, and, and did a lot of drafting of these monsters, a lot of drawing, a lot of doodling, and realized that they were coming more and more uh, like his Jewish relatives. So he talked about um, that these were people who behaved, in fact, like the monsters in the wild things because his relatives would come on Sunday, his mother cooked very slowly, and the relatives would say things to him and to his brother and sister, things like, oh, you've gotten so fat, or oh, you've gotten so big, or oh, you're so, um, you're so cute. We want to eat you up. So all of the same things that are said by the wild things were, in fact, ways that his uh, relatives were treating him on these Sunday afternoons. So they were, he and his brother and sister were sort of um, sure that they would be eaten up, in fact, by their relatives because uh, it was taking so long and um, they were likely getting hungry and also the children were very tempting because they'd been fattened up nicely. And in fact, when he goes ahead and, and um, assists with the making of the opera, he gives the names of his relatives 
Zippy is one of them, Moisha, Bernard, Emile, these are all names of his relatives, and he gives them, in fact, to the wild things in the opera, which I love. I love the fact that over a long span of time, we've gotten to really learn quite a bit about the sort of um, the backstory behind where the wild things are. Before we dive right into the text, I want to talk a little bit about what makes this work so kind of revolutionary in some ways, because it really is a departure from a lot of the children's books that had come before. So when you think of fairy tales, when you think of children's literature, you know, a long, long time ago, and you think of Grimm's fairy tales, or you think of uh, like even Hans Christian Andersen, uh, you think of The Little Mermaid, you think of Hansel and Gretel, you think of Snow White, all of these different different um, fairy tales were often stories about children trying to be good and being sort of beset by a world that was hostile to them. Um, you know, whether it's a, a stepmother or it is a wolf or it is, um, you know, any one of these things, the world is full of dangers and children are sort of these good creatures who are often trying to do the right thing. And in fact, those those stories are often didactic in the sense that they're you know, teaching you something. They're teaching you a certain lesson. So there's a certain uh, morality that is that is sort of embedded in a lot of these uh, these stories. Then you get to the whole um, you know when when novels really sort of were rising during the 19th century. You get into all of that Victorian children's literature. So things like The Secret Garden or um, or even like Little Women. All of those those um, I think that was probably early. 20th 20th century, but you have this idea of, of like morality as being really central and, and kids doing kind of the right thing um, and, you know, not skating on the frozen pond and not doing all of these things that are in fact going to lead to danger. So a lot of it is is sort of reinforcing all of these morals and, and really like the idea is that children need to kind of stay in line and you need to, you know, do what your parents say and you need to um, be, be very sort of cautious and you need to think. Uh, think clearly and and not be sort of naughty. Also, to be clear, there were plenty of naughty kids in these stories that, uh, in fact, did not do the right thing. And there was serious repercussion, which is another one of the differences between what is happening in Where the Wild Things Are versus this literature that was more about sort of um, reinforcing a certain kind of behavior. So with that idea of, of, you know, these sort of long ago fairy tales and then this Victorian literature, in the 60s, in the early 60s, you know, you think about, you know, um, Jack, not Jack and Jill, uh, what are, J Dick and Jane? You know, you look at sort of some of that, that stuff from the 50s. I'm trying to think of some other things from the 50s, and let me tell you, that is not my forte. I'm not going to be able to come up with a lot of um, a lot of children's books from the 50s. But you have this kind of radical departure um, with where the wild things are. When it was published in 1963, it signaled sort of a, a, a sea change as we are moving into kind of that more radical decade. So um, this is when we are going to dive, in fact, into uh, the text itself. We have, again, this kind of muted palette. And in lots of ways, the, the, um, when you see like all of the hashing, all of, and I am not an art critic, so this is, you're gonna have to take this all with a grain of salt. Um, but, but this hashing is really talking about gradation. It's not talking about, um, black and white, and it's not talking about, um, you know, strong sort of messages. There's a lot of subtlety. There's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of, um, intricacy and a lot of things to notice. So this is really, 
really um, engaging a child in a way that something like Dick and Jane is not. And instead, in Where the Wild Things Are, it's really, um, we're really celebrating texture. I'm holding up the, um, this is just like the, the I, I don't know what you call that. I wanna say fly leaf, but that's probably not right. If you're watching YouTube, I'll put the confirmation or the correction there for you. But um, you have this really beautiful kind of textural, like um, it almost looks like a textile, in fact, um, it, of the, um, the sort of first two pages that have folded out. Right away, we are immersed into a world that is colorful, and, but, but sort of subtly colorful, and is wild and crazy, and in fact does not have any words. So importantly, the book has 10 sentences, and I believe it's like 366 words or something, 367. There is not a lot of text to be had here, and I really like the fact that the first pages that you open to are in fact just this sort of field of what look like tropical plants in all of these sort of um, uh, muted but really varied colors. Then we move and we have that kind of iconic where the wild things are typeset. I'm holding it up. Um, it's immediately recognizable. I don't know what that font is. Um, I can look into that, but it's certainly immediately uh, recognizable. It's bold. It's playful. It's really, um, it's really excellent. Okay, then we're going to dive into the text itself. The way we're going to do this, I'm just going to read the whole entire book to you, um, which seems kind of crazy, but it actually does not take long at all. And it's really, really interesting uh, as you are reading through, as I am reading through and you are listening, to note how many ands there are. So and, using and again and again, instead of, you know, stopping the sentence and starting again, uh, or instead of um, using a comma, which in this case, he might have used a comma instead of the and, it's called poly. Sinditon, which is just a fancy way of saying using a lot of ands. And it's a really interesting tool in this case because it, it's allowing the reader to kind of enter into this kind of trance-like thing where we are moving forward and we we're just keep going and going and going. It's a bit like Max himself as he is journeying out. It's a bit like a dance. It's a bit like a song. It's kind of going on and on and on. And there's a dreamy quality to it and a continuity that's very different than like, um, you know, than a story that is full of a lot of sort of um, a lot of stops in it. So you have this sense of fluidity that's really beautifully reflected in the text. It's also, um, I wish... I wish that you were here with me because the way that the text is um, formatted on the pages is so cool. So you have sentences that run certainly from one page to the next. And in fact, for pages and pages and pages, a single sentence will be running along all of those pages. So when we have the text, it's often running along the left-hand side. So we're reading the text and then you have the illustration on the right-hand side, but it's this beautiful sense of continuity and of the story um, sort of moving forward in a very consistent way. The night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another, his mother called him wild thing, and Max said, I'll eat you up. So he was sent to bed without eating anything. That very night in Max's room, a forest grew and grew and grew until his ceiling hung with vines and the walls became the world all around. And an ocean tumbled by with a private boat for Max. And he sailed off through night and day and in and out of weeks and almost over a year to where the wild things are. 
And when he came to the place where the wild things are, they roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws, till Max said, Be still, and tamed them with the magic trick of staring into all their yellow eyes without blinking once. And they were frightened and called him the most wild thing of all and made him king of all the wild things. And now, cried Max, let the wild rumpus start. Now stop, Max said, and sent the wild things off to bed without their supper. And Max, the king of all wild things, was lonely and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. Then, all around from far away across the world, he smelled good things to eat. So he gave up being a king of where the wild things are. But the wild things cried, oh, please don't go. We'll eat you up. We love you so. And Max said, no. The wild things roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws. But Max stepped into his private boat and waved goodbye and sailed back over a year and in and out of weeks and through a day and into the night of his very own room where he found his supper waiting for him and it was still hot. It's so good, it's so beautiful. I mean, it's just an absolute literary masterpiece. We, in fact, are going to dive in a little more deeply and talk about why, in fact, this prose is so excellent. So the opening is so interesting. You're almost, it's almost kind of like an in media rest thing, like where we are jumping in when something's already happening. We're given a context and we're not really sure what has happened yet. So Sundak is giving us at the beginning the time and sort of setting the scene with, um, with this suit and how Max is dressed, but we don't really know what has happened. So right away there's intrigue that is built in with very, very few words. The night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another, his mother called him wild thing and Max said, I'll eat you up. So he was sent to bed without eating anything. So this is very important. What the, the big event here is that he is sent to bed, but what's sort of the background information is how he was dressed, the fact that this is happening at night, and the kinds of mischief that he is making. So um, in the very first illustration, he has a giant hammer, which um, we're gonna talk about the psychoanalytics of this later, but I think you can read that as a, as a um, phallic symbol here. And in fact, he is using it to drive attack into the wall. So again, you've got this idea of, um, you know, of violation and this idea of, of sort of pounding something. Uh, in this case, it's a very long nail, in fact, and he is pounding it with the hammer um, and at the other end of this kind of, um, he's got like a, it's a, a rope that he has made out of a bunch of, looks like handkerchiefs. And at the other end, there's a little bear who's hanging very forlornly by one arm. So you really do have this idea of Max as doing stuff that's like not that cool. Then on the next page, we have him chasing after poor Jenny, the dog. We know that this um, this dog, Jenny, because of Higgledy Piggledy Pop, which is an unbelievably great book. It was one of my favorites when I was little, also by Sendak. Jenny is the star of that. Um, it's a very sort of metaphysical book about, in fact, Jenny's uh, death, about sort of moving on to the next, um, you know, realm. 
But in the, on the second illustration here, we have Max chasing Jenny with a fork. And Jenny's looking really sad and bummed out and, and sort of ashamed, actually. It's really, really a very, um, really well done and beautiful uh, uh, illustration of a lot of mischief happening and Jenny really bearing the brunt. Importantly, against the wall here, we have kind of a little foreshadowing, a little literary foreshadowing. There is an illustration on the wall uh, that says by Max, and it is a picture of a monster. And it, it, it's like a, you know, his mother or someone has put up on the wall, um, a, a, like a drawing that Max himself has done. But again, that sort of foreshadowing of this world that is coming out of his uh, imagination. So we have this idea of, of, of a precursor in fact, and one that has been produced importantly by Max. So there is a lot, a lot, a lot of scholarship on this book, which I find so amazing and awesome and inspirational. People take this book very seriously. And in fact, there's a lot of stuff about the child as artist and about artistic production. And a lot is made of, of this little drawing, in fact, that Max has made that is uh, pinned up on the wall or it's taped. I don't know. I can't tell. Might be taped, might be pinned. Um, so he's making mischief. And then we have the voice of his mother. Importantly, the mother is never shown. There is never a picture of the mother. Um, it's a little like Charles Schultz, where you just have the adults who are all mwah, 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 like that. Um, his, but his mother is actually not um, indecipherable. In fact, her voice is very clear. It is all caps and there is an exclamation mark. His mother called him wild thing. And Max said, I'll eat you up. So we, it's interesting, his mother calls him that, but it wasn't that she called that to him. It's We're getting this kind of reportage on the part of Max, um, on the part of our narrator here, where Max has been called wild thing by his mother, and that is a bad thing. So again, this comes from this Yiddish phrase that uh, Sendak's mother used to use for him. What's interesting here is this idea of, of food and of eating things. And we're gonna talk about this more when we talk about the psychoanalytic interpretation. But this idea of Max saying that he's going to eat up his mother is very important. So we talked a bit before about how the Jewish relatives would come on Sundays um, and they would threaten to eat them up. They'd say, oh, you're so cute, I could just eat you up. That idea of, of consuming something because you love it so much is kind of this tried and true trope. And it is one, in fact, that Maurice Sendak uh, makes very good use of. There's, a, there's an illustration, I'll pop it on YouTube now. It's so interesting. It's a baby breastfeeding and then the baby consumes the mother. So you definitely have this preoccupation on the part of Maurice Sendak with this idea of orality, of, of sort of the, um, the, 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 the wanting to consume something uh, and the idea of, of being consumed by someone, you know, by, by their affection or being overwhelmed um, by their presence, or in this case, being actually eaten up uh, by your son. So he was sent to bed without eating anything. So again, this preoccupation with food and with nurturing uh, and with a sort of this archetypal um, withholding. We have this mother figure here who is not nurturing her child, which is a major break um, in, in terms of expectation. So then we have this next sentence. That's a whole first sentence. And the next sentence begins, that very night in Max's room, a forest grew. 
So what's really important here, this is not like a Harold's, um, you know, crayon thing where um, he's drawing something and it's turning, it's, a, it's an illustration that's turning into stuff. This is just the narrator saying a forest actually grew. So this is, um, if you are a child, you are identifying with Max as children will, um, but, but suddenly a forest is beginning to grow. It's not that he imagines it or that he hopes a forest will grow, but he, he, he the, the narrator, who is the authority here is telling us a forest grew and in fact you have you know the bedposts are turning into uh you know into trees and you have vines and trees growing up th that are very consistent in fact with the furniture and the bed you have the primacy of the window here again windows are very important um for sendak in part autobiographically because he was so ill, but also this idea of, of the home and of domesticity and of safety versus the wide world outside and the idea that children need to leave home and in fact go out into the world. So we have the forest and it's growing and it's growing uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's growing and growing and growing and an ocean tumbled by with a private boat for Max and he sailed off through night and day and in and out of weeks and almost over a year to where the wild things are. So I love this. There is a big chunk of text here in the middle of the story that is devoted to the passage of time. And I love the way that time sort of dilates here. We have this idea of him um, not only sailing through night and day, but in and out of weeks and almost over a year. So the idea of in and out of weeks and over a year, we have this mixture of, of, of um, prepositions that are not in fact usually used with time. The idea of sailing over a year or in and out of weeks, um, there, there's kind of a um, like a fantastical kind of thing that's happening here. Like language is starting to sort of um, not break down, but it's becoming more and more malleable and more and more um, sort of valent. It's having sort of different uh, usages than it most normally does. I also love the idea of time for a child as dilating this way in the sense that, you know, it, it, this is all in the course of, of an evening because at the end we have Max back at home having dinner. Um, but there's this sense of time as, as, as drawing out the way that it would have on those Sundays with his relatives and certainly the way that it would uh, if you were a young boy who is sent to his room without dinner. It would seem like an eternity. It would seem like days and days and weeks and, and, uh, and years. So it's a really, really good, um, I think, a really good perspective, like a child-taking perspective. It's also really interesting that that this big chunk of text, you know, you're talking about time for a long time. I mean, if this is 366 words or whatever, a lot of words there are used to talk about the, the sort of expanse of time, which is very kind of, um, it's cool because the time that it is taking to talk about the time is reflective of how long this is sort of happening. This trip and this adventure that he is going on is really given um, a, a lot of weight because of how many words are devoted to it. There's an illustration here I'm gonna hold up and try to talk around. Um, 
so you can still hear me. There's a sort of sea creature and Max is in fact looking very afraid. So one of the big controversies about this book is that children will be very afraid, that, that they will feel, um, you know, that they'll be scared by the book. And um, Sendak does say that in fact that might happen and he makes this really interesting point and a very good one um, about the fact that we can't protect our children and you never know what is gonna scare them, whether it's the vacuum cleaner um, or for example, he, when he was young, his father took him to see Charlie Chaplin because his father loved Charlie Chaplin. And poor Maurice Sendak was horrified about the weird way in which Charlie Chaplin moved and, and found no humor in it whatsoever. So um, he's making this point that maybe some child is afraid of this. But in fact, if that's the case, you should just not read the book to your child. But there is um, the point that he makes, and I think it is a very salient one, and I think it's one of the strengths of the book, is the fact that children will identify with Max, and Max is looking a little afraid as he is sailing out. But once he gets to the island and um, the, the place where the wild things are, it's interesting, we don't know if it's an island or a peninsula or a continent, that is not important, it's simply where they are. It's not the island of the wild things, it's simply where they are. So as soon as he is there and, and, and they seem threatening to him because they really are threatening, he then tames them in a way that is very powerful. And Sendak's um, sort of, you know, the, 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 the position that he takes is that the children will identify with Max. And as long as Max is in control and he is the king of the wild things, then the child will feel safe. And not only that, the child will identify with this ability to, uh, to in fact, have uh, control over a situation where normally they might not have control. That is to say that the child is in control of all of these huge monsters who are much bigger, in fact, than Max is. So then we get to this beautiful thing that eventually becomes sort of a refrain. And when he came to the place where the wild things are, they roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws till Max said, be still. So we have this idea here of, of um, all this refrain about, and it's such a beautifully, you know, the, the words themselves and, and the sounds, I mean, I could do a real, you know, serious linguistic uh, parsing, the gnashing and the rolling and the showing, the sounds are so evocative and so cool. And of course you have uh, this repetition of terrible, which is this kind of terrible, like it's, it's, it's all of these different consonant and vowel sounds that together are this kind of gnashing, um, you know, sort of terrible, uh, I mean, now I'm just repeating words, but you get the sense. He does a very, very good job of using words, I think, that are very evocative, and in fact, words that are repeated, uh, again, in a way that's very powerful. So, Max says, be still, and interestingly, that's not the end of the sentence. We have a lowercase, and tamed them with the magic trick of staring into all their yellow eyes without blinking once. And they were frightened and called him the most wild thing of all. So what Max does here is simply stare at them in the eye, doesn't blink, and, and immediately sort of hypnotizes them and they are all sort of in his thrall and in fact want to make him the king. So again, this is a, um, earlier we talked about how Sendak sees this as kind of this mundane moment. And in fact, what he does is, is make eye contact, you know, he's staring at them and that is enough. So, you know, this is a very empowering story in lots of ways because a child doesn't have to be huge and they don't have to be articulate and they don't have to have pocket money and they don't have to have escape routes. 
All they have to do is use their eyes, in fact, to tame someone, which is a hugely empowering concept. It's really, it's really just beautiful. And then of course we have Max saying, let the wild rumpus start. So then the wild things, you have this whole rumpus that happens. Um, I wonder if rumpus is a Yiddish word. I will, um, I'm not going to get back to you if you're listening to the podcast. If you are on the um, YouTube channel, I will um, pop a little, a little something in there and tell you whether or not rumpus is a, a, a Yiddish word. And here we have, again, these somewhat darker colors. Um, it's nighttime. So you have you have the moon, um, which the moon is a, a feature in the window in the beginning, but now we have a full moon and we have this really strong presence of the moon. In fact, it's not a bad idea to remember at this point that the moon is often a, a stand-in for the feminine. You know, you think about the lunar calendar and that 28-day thing that that is, um, you know, consistent with a woman's um, menstrual cycle, but also this idea just of the moon as being sort of a literary symbol of the woman, the lunar. So um, we have this this presence of the moon here that is really very significant. They're all sort of, you know, enthralled to the moon. And we have them very happily in, I think, what is maybe the most famous of the images where they are all, um, you know, swinging from the trees as they are moving along. Then we have another famous one where Max is, in fact, riding on the backs of them. And you really do get a sense of how small he is compared, in fact, with these other giant monsters. Now stop, Max said, and sent the wild things off to bed without their supper. So here you have this really beautiful kind of parallel where Max takes on the authority that his mother had. Max is able to sort of um, become an adult figure and an authority here in a way that's very, um, in some ways it's very uh, cathartic because he is able, in fact, to do this thing uh, th that he was before he was powerless and now he's powerful. It also is a little, like on some level, I'm like, this is a little bit totalitarian, like a little bit of a dictatorship here where he's really mad that his mom is sending him to bed. And then as soon as he is the all powerful, um, you know, king, he in fact is doing the thing that he did not like to do before. Um, but then as soon as he puts them off to bed without their supper and we have this really beautiful picture of them, they're, they're all sleeping. And in fact, in their sleeping, they, they look a little bit like they're smiling. Um, so they all look kind of content and happy. Although the one with the big, huge feet and the big, gross toenails is really like, wow, yikes. Then we are approaching kind of the, the last arc of the book. And Max, the king of all wild things, was lonely and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. Then, all around, from far away, across the world, he smelled good things to eat. So he gave up being king of where the wild things are. So importantly, this is a series of short sentences. I mean, relatively speaking, we've had these long, long, long sentences. And then when Max is really coming into his own, we have these shorter, kind of more mature sentences in some ways, and certainly more sort of grammatically correct. So it's very important too that when he was lonely, he wanted to go to the place where someone loves him best of all. So when we talk about the psychoanalytic, um, you know, interpretation of the book, we're going to talk a little bit about this sort of primary relationship. So there's this idea of um, when a child, they, they have this, you know, very strong relationship with their mother because of, um, you know, all sorts of maternal bonding that ideally happens when the child is young. And one of the tasks of childhood in fact, is to move away from this safe, secure base that the child has has created with the mother and, and venture out into the world. But the reason why children are able to do that, in part, 
according to people like John Bowlby and Melanie Klein, who are psychoanalytic kind of people, um, you know, psychoanalysts, the, the idea is, in fact, that they are able to mo move away because they, in fact, are confident that someone really loves them, someone loves him best. So you have this idea of, of his mother's love as being something that is very deep and, and incontrovertible. So this is also very important because if you are a child who has been sent to bed, the end of this book is reassuring you of the fact that just because you were sent to bed doesn't mean your mother doesn't love you. So it's this very, um, really important affirmation. So then, of course, he wants to go and um, he, he is leaving and they say all the wild things cry, oh, please don't go. We'll eat you up. We love you so. So there's a band called Alt-J that I love. And there's a, there, I think it's one of their most, um, you know, sort of famous songs. It's called Breeze Blocks. It's so good. And it is inspired, in fact, by this. And there is, this is part of the refrain it, over and over. It's saying, please don't go, please don't go. We love you so, we love you so. We'll eat you up. It's so good. Check it out. Alt J, Breeze Blocks. Um, and, you know, if you already know the song, I bet you'll know it when you listen to it. I mean, I have no idea what your musical tastes are all about, but if you're 54 um, and super hip, no, just kidding. Um, but, you know, if you, uh, if you know Alt J, you'll know the song. And um, it, it's really kind of fun to realize that that, first of all, that that's what they're saying. And then second of all, to know that Maurice Sendak was, was at the heart of this whole thing. So then we have this refrain where they're going back to, they roared their terrible roars, gnashed their terrible teeth, rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws, which is really important to have that kind of touchstone again, because there's a lot of familiarity with it. And there's a certain rhythm and a certain sort of um, expectation that is being fulfilled in a way that is very comforting. So then he sailed back over a year and in and out of weeks and through a day, so you have kind of this really satisfying reversal um, that we're sort of moving back. And it, he's looking very sleepy in the picture. And the, the colors are so beautiful. We've got this really sort of dark, um, dark kind of bluish gray. And again, this is not a very childlike palette. It's really a very sort of dark and brooding um, and kind of muddy palette in some ways. But it's really, really beautiful. I'm also looking at these palm trees and they're looking really phallic. So, you know, maybe we've got both men. Um, we've got both male and female things represented here. The father conspicuously absent throughout the whole entire thing. So he's sailing through time into the night of his very own room where he found his supper waiting for him. So importantly, in this last illustration, um, we have Max uh, taking off his costume. So he's stopping. He's not, in fact, being a wolf so much anymore. Now he is returning to himself, which is very important when we talk about the psychology of, uh, of the book. And then I love the fact that we have these very last words, and it was still hot. On the back of this last final page, we have this idea of, of just the words. So we begin with just illustration, we're ending with just the words, but it's this very sweet idea too that not only is the does he have supper for himself, but it's still warm. His mother is um, in, in fact very immediate because he can still sort of feel the warmth of her and her presence. It's just so beautiful. 
The last thing I want to do is talk a little bit about uh, different ways that the book has been interpreted in terms of psychology and also in terms of psychoanalysis. So the sort of, um, I think one of the most persuasive and important and really interesting ideas uh, from the psychological perspective is that what this book does in part is help children understand that you can have really powerful emotions, you can feel anger and you can, um, you know, you can be really overcome by your own anger, uh, but you can control that. So when he is with the wild things and he's able to sort of tame them, people have interpreted that as a way to sort of tame his own anger. So if these are sort of manifestations of his own interior landscape, he's able to have them feel out of control, but he's then able to sort of, um, through this catharsis of really feeling them and interacting with them and letting them have some release, you know, they have their wild rumpus. And then after that, um, he's able to sort of restore some order and come back to himself. So there's this idea of, of um, being able to sort of overcome anger. There's also this idea of unconditional love, that, that even if you get in trouble, uh, your mother still loves you kind of a very important, you know, basic concept there. Also the idea of shame, there isn't a lot of shame in the book. Um, you have this sense that, that he can do this thing and he can get into trouble and he can make all sorts of mischief. And at the end, you know, he is in a place where he is warm and he is being nurtured by someone who is not necessarily super present, but you know, you can sort of feel the warmth of the mother again through this, the warmth of, of the food, in fact. I love, by the way, the fact that and the, the smell of good food is mentioned, but not a specific kind of food, which is genius because this is one of the absolute just magical things about reading is that when, when he says, you know, good food, he could smell good food, every child is going to be able to, to sort of imagine what it is that seems like good food to them, whether that's chicken nuggets or french fries or french toast, uh, whatever, whatever their favorite food is, whatever they would imagine to be perfect is what they would be conjuring. So, I mean, that's a general kind of thing about the magic of reading is that when things, you know, it, it needs to be specific enough so that you can sort of conjure, uh, you know, your own version of something. But when there is enough room, it's just magical to know that for each person, that can be the perfect thing for them. So you have this idea of, of um, you know, of, of this unconditional love and this idea of being able to overcome uh, and, and sort of tame your own anger and know, in fact, that, that somebody uh, will still be waiting for you, that you will have this, this person to return to and that you don't need to be ashamed uh, of the fact of having these very strong emotions. The last thing we're going to do is touch on some of the more sort of psychoanalytic interpretations that have been made of where the wild things are. So I think most of you are probably somewhat familiar with the idea of the id, the ego, and the superego. So the id are sort of our darker, sort of more base impulses, uh, things like anger and fury and, and um, sexual desire and the death drive, all of these kinds of, I mean, this is, I am not a, an actual psychoanalyst and I really, um, my, my understanding of this is pretty rudimentary in some ways, so don't quote me on any of this, but this is what I'm imagining. The id is all about sort of our desires 
And then we have the ego, which is the part of ourself that sort of is controlling that, uh, that, that id, controlling all of those impulses. And then the superego is kind of the, the more societal things like parents or schools or laws or government that are, that are sort of imposing a set of, of um, you know, controls upon us. So this is such an interesting look at the impulses of this child, which are to hammer stuff into the walls and to be mean to the dog and to hang the teddy bear in a way that's making the teddy bear look very sad. I mean, all of this kind of mischief making that this child is getting up to are all of these kind of id impulses. And in fact, this idea of escaping and, and, and going far away, um, then the, the, the id is sort of given full reign. This idea of, of these monsters uh, and fears as sort of coming to life, then in fact, the, the child himself, Max, is able to, with his own ego, not the super ego, he is able to, to sort of take control and to understand these impulses and in fact, to make sense of them and to tame them and to sort of, um, you know, move through them and then is able to return to his own life. So it's so cool in some ways because it's not like some lesson that he's learning from some outside authority. It is in fact his own self who is taking control of these really strong and, and, and sort of overwhelming desires and emotions and reactions. You know, when the mother says to him, you know, wild thing, and he says, I'll eat you up. That's an example of one of those, those sort of id impulses. So um, in terms of id impulses, there is this idea of the oral stage. So I think, again, this is just like really off the cuff here. Um, but, but the oral stage is when a very, very young baby, you know, the only thing a baby can do is, is suck milk when they are very small. So there, there's thinking, um, you know, when people talk about an oral fixation or an anal fixation, um, there's this idea in terms of orality, that if you don't kind of move through the oral stage when you're an infant, that you'll get sort of arrested at that stage and orality, you know, you'll be sort of fixated and you always have to be like, I don't know, chewing gum or like putting, I don't know, a toothpick in your mouth or whatever the thing is. So orality is this real fixation um, in the Freudian world in terms of like normal psychological development. So the idea of I will eat you up and this kind of consuming idea and all of the idea of food and taking things in is really kind of foregrounding some of this orality. And the fact that we have the child, Max, with his mother, you know, that you have this idea of, of her nurturing him. He's obviously not an infant who's breastfeeding, but you do have this idea of, of their relationship at one point, um, you know, whether or not Max's mother breastfed, we do not know. But this idea of, of sort of the archetypal mother as, as either withholding or providing um, this nurturing through a sucking action, whether that's a bottle or a breast, um, I'm really digging into it here. But so we have this idea um, of, of orality and this idea of Max and this idea of consuming things in this sort of, uh, you know, mother-son relationship. We also, of course, have this idea of incest. So that is obviously a very large taboo, but this idea of, of this primary relationship, the person who loves you best, it is totally normal as a child to think that your mother loves you best. So you have this idea at the end um, of him returning to the place where his mother loves him best, and in fact, where she's going to provide some sort of oral gratification for him, because in fact, uh, you know, the, the food there is still warm. But you have this idea of, of, of this sort of love as being, um, you know, a 
taboo. What we're talking about here is the idea of, um, of, of him as controlling that impulse and being able to sort of move away and come back and engage with his mother in an appropriate way, which is having uh, the dinner that she has left for him. I look like a Viking. Now my dog outfit is turned into a Viking cap. Okay, um, and then this idea of that I spoke about briefly before about Melanie Klein and John Bowlby, this idea of individuation and, and um, the mother as the primary love object. So the idea is that the relationship that we have with our mother informs a lot of relationships that we have later. So what you want is a secure base and you want like confidence in the fact that your mother loves you and that allows you to move out into the world exactly as Max does. And then occasionally you're going to, you're going to get lonely and you're going to feel like you want dinner and you're going to want to be back in your own home. And so when that happens, you can return easily to the mother and you can feel comfortable and you can have your dinner that is still warm. And then um, presumably as your life, uh, you know, goes on and you are maturing, you in fact can spend more and more time out in the world. But I love this book as a, a very clear um, and very kind of good illustration of this idea of a secure base where, you know, you can have a conflict, in fact, with the mother. You can move away and you can, um, you know, have a big adventure and you can have a successful adventure um, because, in fact, you are secure in uh, this love that your mother has for you. It also, I think, is a good primer of sort of individuation, which is just what I was just talking about. This idea of, of the mother is not present. We don't see the mother. Max is becoming an individual. He looks kind of like he's like, I don't know, five, six, seven, something like that. So he's he's becoming, um, you know, basically in the Freudian world, everything's done zero to five. You know, your mom and your dad, like zero to five is all the work is done. All of your primary relationships have already been established, and that's the the sort of template and the blueprint for the rest of all of your relationships you'll ever have. So if if we're looking at him as five, six, seven year old, um, he might be a little younger, but you know, he he has this. We have this sense of 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 him as as really being um, at a time where it would be appropriate for him to go through some sort of nice uh, individuation. I mean, again, I just have to, this is like a big caveat mTOR here. I am not a psychologist. I am not a psychoanalyst, um, but I'm really enjoying digging into the book from this perspective. I want to end today um, just by a quick little comparison um, between the, the very first image that we have of Max in his bedroom before it begins to grow and the very last image of the book. It's a really beautiful comparison, and I think even though you can't see it in front of you, you'll be able to appreciate it. So in this first um, iteration of the, the bedroom before, right when he is sent to bed and he's looking very angry, he uh, has very angry eyes and one hand kind of on a hip, and he is staring at the door, which is shut. And he's again, he's looking very angry. And it's the, the illustration is a little bit smaller. So it's not a full bleed. The, the, there's about a border of like an inch and a half, maybe all around. So we have this sense of the whole thing happening sort of inside a box in a way that's a little claustrophobic and it, it makes the whole thing seem a little small. And the, the colors, the palette this in this iteration here, everything is a little bit yellowish um, in a kind of a dirty, kind of mustardy color. And um, we do have a pink bedspread, but the rug itself is, is yellow and um, the sky is kind of like a muddier yellow. And we have a moon um, and, and it's kind of a, um, a, it's not a full moon, it's like a quarter moon, but it, it has kind of that shadow of the moon thing, but it's very kind of nebulous and you can't really see the moon uh, all 
all that well. And then of course you have the beautiful hashtagging. I mean, you, whoops, not hashtagging, hash marking. Everything is, um, it, it, it is very sort of, it's as if, except for Max's face, importantly, and, and a lot of his body, everything feels um, as if you're looking at it a little bit through kind of a scrim, kind of through a, um, a like everything's a little bit obscured. And then when we, when he returns to his room, so that's when he's first sent away. And then at the end of the book, when he returns to the room, it's the very last um, of the illustrations in the book. And he looks so content and he's sort of relieved. The, the wolf hat is pushed back on his head um, and he still has his wolf hands, but he has a hand on his head with, with kind of a relieved thing, like, like he's just so glad to be back. And he looks a little sleepy, but mostly just very content with a big, big smile. Um, and his big feet. And in this case, the colors are much warmer. So we have a much warmer palette and it is a full bleed in the sense that the, the, the illustration goes all the way to the edges of the pages. So there's a certain intimacy here. We feel like we are right in the room with him. It's not framed and it's not like a clear illustration. Um, it is in fact inviting us in. And we have obviously his supper is sitting on the little table and it is very inviting. Looks like a glass of milk and maybe like even a little piece of cake. There's something that looks like a little layered. It almost looks like a tiramisu, probably not tiramisu, but it looks delicious. And a bowl with a spoon in it. And importantly, um, we have a moon now. The moon is a full moon and it's very clear. And there's a bit of a sort of dark halo around it and then a lot of stars. And you have a very dark night, but you have this, this very, um, you know, sort of prominent uh, uh, presence of the moon in a way that's really, really beautiful. And again, if we think of, of, of the moon as sort of a symbol of woman, then you have this idea of, of his mother's presence being a little bit clearer. Uh, but, but it's just a really beautiful way to sort of dig in um, to these images because there is so much contrast between them in terms of mood and in terms of palette. Um, it's subtle, of course, as are all things with this book, but there's a really beautiful um, a sense of, of, of sort of evolution, again, a subtle evolution, um, but a very, very different tone and one that I think is really beautiful. So I want to thank you so much for joining me in this deep dive into uh, this amazing, amazing book that I think has been so formative for a lot of us. I would really recommend taking a look at it. Next time you're passing a bookstore, pop on in, um, you know, just just take a gander through it or um, or. Uh, you know, hop onto the YouTube if you haven't been watching the YouTube and check out some of my images. So um, thank you so much for tuning in. And um, now that you're done with this, you can head straight back to the Fox page and find something else to listen to. Happy reading. <laughs>